Hi, this is Jeremy from the Podcast We Listen To podcast. I wanted to take a second to talk to you about a thing that we're putting together called PodCon 2018. This is a convention of podcast listeners, for podcast listeners, and by podcast listeners. And yeah, hosts are listeners too. I listen all day long. This is going to be the fall of 2018 in New Orleans, and it's going to be a blast. It's being put together by myself, members of the podcast we listen to Facebook group, and hosts of several of your favorite shows, including Dina from Twisted Philly and Allie from Insight. Fall of 2018 gives us time to put it together right. We're really looking forward to it. There is so much excitement. The podcast we listen to Facebook group is blowing up over it. For more information, you can join the podcast we listen to Facebook group, or you can follow at PodCon2018 on Twitter. And as soon as we finalize more details, we will put those out there for you. In the meantime, just keep listening to your favorite shows, and you'll probably hear something about it. Welcome to Felon, true crime podcast. This episode is a case suggestion from the team at They Walk Among Us, a UK true crime podcast, which is a personal favorite of mine. To check out the case that I suggested for them, listen to episode 13 of season 1 through iTunes or your favorite podcast app, or visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Murder is a terrifying experience. It's extremely scary to have that much power. It's playing God with life and death. Nobody should have that sort of power, but we all do. He strains his eyes to focus as he lurches through the doorway, grabbing at both sides to steady himself. He spills out into the street, tilting forward, almost falling, but catching himself in a staccato of quick, awkward steps. Using this momentum, he makes his way along the path, staggering into the night. His legs are unable to carry him the distance home, and he falls against the signpost embracing it to keep himself from crashing to the ground below. Through a blurry, confused haze, he scans the road, hoping for a passing taxi to flag down and carry him home. While he waits, a car moves slowly, edging its way through darkened alleys and streets. Its headlights scan the quiet roads like eyes. A lone man appears in their beam. He is holding a post and is struggling to keep himself upright. The car approaches the stranger and eases to a stop. Curiously, he looks towards the vehicle, trying to make out the figures within. Their faces are illuminated by the ambient glow of the dashboard lights. Hovering orange spectres staring intently back at the lonely drunk. There is a brief exchange of words and then a rear door is opened. He leaves the stability of the pole and lumbers towards the vehicle, crawling inside. The car with its newfound passenger rumbles into the night. In the early hours of the 22nd of October, 1989, Stephen Karen was rowing in the waters of the Brisbane River. It was earlier than normal for him, and he was the only person out on the water. 
With each pull of the oars, he skimmed across the peaceful water's surface, but the peacefulness of the morning would soon be swept away by a gruesome discovery. As he surged along near the banks of the Brisbane River, he spotted what appeared to be a body lying face down near the South Brisbane Sailing Club. As he drew nearer, he could see it was a male and he seemed to be covered in blood. He was in a fetal position. He was naked. Uh, he defecated. There was blood all up the wall of the boat shed. His head was back and he was basically cut from ear to ear through his throat. And it was very messy, horrible scene. Police swarmed on the sailing club and investigators cordoned off the area in an attempt to gather evidence and track down a violent murderer who was still on the loose. Detective Patrick Glancy, who attended the scene, described it as one of the worst he has ever witnessed, as he recalled the gruesome details. The body was naked. He was uh, covered in blood, congealed blood mainly. Uh, he had a pair of socks on his, uh, his feet, but nothing else. The body had uh, in excess of 12 good puncture wounds to the chest and back. The only uh, thing holding the head to the, to the body, I think myself, was uh, just the spine. That same morning, around the time that the body was discovered, Elaine Baldock woke and was startled to discover her husband's side of the bed had not been disturbed. It wasn't uncommon for him to return late after drinking sessions with mates, but for him to stay out all night into the morning was out of character for him. Her worst fears would be confirmed when police came knocking on her door. At the crime scene, police discovered a pile of neatly folded clothes a pair of pants and a shirt belonging to the victim. Wedged under the sailing club garage door was a wallet. Inside the wallet, identification would reveal the victim to be Edward Clyde Baldock, a 47-year-old husband, father of four and grandfather from the nearby suburb of West End. On the evening of Friday the 21st of October, 1989, Edward Baldock said goodbye to his wife Elaine and took a taxi to the Caledonian Club in Kangaroo Point, an eastern suburb across the river from the Brisbane CBD. It was a weekly ritual for the council worker to spend the end of the working week drinking at the club, which was only a 15 minute drive from his home. It was here he spent the night drinking, playing darts and socialising with friends and acquaintances. The last known sighting of Edward Baldock had been when he had bid his drinking buddies farewell and stumbled from the club in search of a taxi around 11pm. Edward Baldock was known to be a much-loved family man, and he had no history of any altercations with anyone that could be considered a motive for such a brutal attack. It appeared to be a random killing. As detectives continued their search of the crime scene, they would soon strike at Lucky, finding an item amongst Edward's possessions that seemed too good to be true. Beneath his shirt and pants, there was a pair of shoes. Upon a close inspection of these shoes, Police found a bank card inside one of them. Curious discovery came with the realization the card did not bear the name of Edward Baldock. Rather, it belonged to a T.A. Wigginton. Within a matter of hours of the discovery of Edward's body, the police swooped on the home of a 24-year-old, Tracy Avril Wigginton, and took her into custody for questioning. Prior to this arrest, it had not occurred to police that the offender could be a woman due to the brutal nature of the attack. In her first interview with police, Tracy Wigginson stated that she had been in the area where the body had been discovered. Her and a friend named Kim Jarvis had noticed a suspicious looking couple hanging around the area. 
Following this revelation, Tracy's friend, Kim Jarvis, was quickly brought into custody and, in an interview with police, gave a conflicting story to Wigginton's account. In a follow-up discussion with Tracy, she broke down and informed police that she had not been completely honest in her first account and she agreed to tell them the truth. She now stated that she had in fact been at the sailing club late at night on the evening in question. She had been walking in the dark with Kim Jarvis and had tripped over something while passing behind the sailing club. When the pair noticed that the object was a body, the discovery had disturbed them so greatly that they fled the scene in a panic. The fact that the story had changed so drastically didn't sit right with investigators, but without further evidence to go on, they were still unable to link the brutal murder to either of the two women. In ongoing discussions with the pair, two more names were mentioned, Lisa Paczynski and Tracy War. Tracy Wigginton was not known to police. There was nothing that stood out about her that was an alarm bell for interviewing officers. She appeared to be calm and in control throughout all the interviews. But behind this calm facade, Tracy was hiding the emotional scars of a troubled past. She was born in 1965 in the northern Queensland coastal city of Rockhampton. Her mother, Rhonda, had been raised by adoptive parents, George and Avril Wigginton. Rhonda and her two sisters, who had also been adopted by the Wiggingtons, would be subjected to a tirade of physical abuse from their mother, who would regularly whip them with electrical cords or with a hose. Tracy's mother escaped the Wigginton family home when she married Bill Rossborough in 1965. Tracy was born to Rhonda and Bill that same year. Her father Bill had been somewhat of a drifter and the prospect of a young family proved too much of a burden for him and he soon skipped town, leaving Rhonda to raise Tracy alone. This forced Rhonda back to the home of her adoptive parents and when Tracy was four years old, Rhonda met a man from out of town and soon left to live with him, leaving Tracy in the care of her grandparents, Avril and George. Tracy was adopted and raised by her grandparents. Even though her grandmother, Avril, had abused her mother, Tracy's relationship with her was quite the opposite. Avril doted on young Tracy, but Tracy's adoptive sister, Michelle, was not so lucky, with Avril subjecting Michelle to ongoing physical and emotional abuse. It was reported that Michelle would be whipped and even had to spend the night locked in a dog kennel. Tracy was subjected to a strict upbringing. She wasn't allowed to have any friends, and the only people she could interact with with her grandparents and their friends. She grew close to her adoptive sister Michelle, and Michelle soon became her only true friend. Although Tracy was not abused by Avril herself, witnessing the abuse that Michelle received at the hands of her grandmother would have a lasting impact on her. On top of being abusive, Tracy's grandmother openly shared her hatred of men. She had done the same with her daughter Rhonda when she was young, warning her that when she grew up, men would do horrible things to her and that all they want is sex. This warning from Avril would take on an ironic significance when later in life Tracy would make the claim that her grandfather had sexually abused her from the age of eight. While this claim remains unsubstantiated, Tracy found herself in trouble in high school when she was accused of molesting other girls and soon expelled. This behavior has been attributed to her mirroring her own abuse at the hand of her grandfather. The negative attitude towards men, indoctrinated in her by her grandmother, coupled with her alleged abuse at the hand of her grandfather, 
has been said to have instilled in Tracy a bitter hatred of men. Following her expulsion from high school, Tracy was sent to a Catholic convent school. Other students found her to be a menacing character in both her personality and stature. She had grown to be 5 foot 10 and weighed over 240 pounds or nearly 110 kilograms and her peers commented on a strange evil look that she had in her eyes. She was seen as an outsider and treated as such and so soon after transferring to the convent school she dropped out at the age of 17. In her teens Tracy developed an obsession with the occult often playing with the Ouija boards and tarot cards. This obsession stayed with her through her teens and into adulthood and would be a significant influence on the direction her life would take. In 1979, Tracy's grandfather died of cancer and soon after his passing, Avril, Tracy's grandmother, found another male companion. This man was given the task of disciplining Tracy who had become what Avril considered to be a rebellious teenager. On one occasion, when he attempted to discipline the unruly teen, she fought back and he was hospitalized with head injuries. This would be yet another incident that would shape her attitude towards men. Soon after Tracy's grandfather's death, her grandmother passed away. This meant that upon turning 18, Tracy would be entitled to inherit $75,000. She used this money to purchase a motorbike and started dressing like a biker. The remainder of the money was spent on a wild social life, which allowed Tracy to finally find acceptance. The inheritance money was soon gone, and her life slipped into chaos. She worked briefly as a prostitute. Her interest in the occult progressed to performing satanic rituals. She became involved in a dysfunctional relationship with a lady who went by the name of Sunshine. Sunshine was bisexual and although the pair were married in a civil ceremony, Sunshine would often cheat on Tracy with a succession of men, and the union soon fell apart. Following this failed relationship with Sunshine, Tracy struck up a friendship with a woman named Lisa Pachinski, and the two soon became lovers. Pachinski and Wigginton shared a common interest in the occult. The pair established a small but tight-knit social circle with two other women, Kim Jarvis and Tracy War. Prior to Wigginton joining the group, the women were part of a subculture group known as Swampies, an early Australian form of goths. These four women were now all in custody, and police were gaining an insight into the life and mind of Tracy Wigington, who, according to Lisa Pachinski, Kim Jarvis, and Tracy War, was the ringleader of their group of outcasts and instigated a series of strange activities. In statements given by the three, it was revealed that Tracy Wigginton would share stories of black magic and her knowledge of the occult. Her influence spread to the others. They all soon started dressing alike, wearing black shirts and leather jackets. They met in local graveyards for drinking sessions and held seances together. Wigginton's obsession with the occult soon escalated to the point that she insisted she was in fact a vampire and that she needed blood to survive. She was so dedicated to this claim that she would tell her newfound friends that she couldn't eat solid foods, opting to drink pig's blood that she purchased from the local butcher. She also avoided mirrors and sunlight. 
Pachinsky, Wigginson's lover, began to allow her to suck blood from her veins. She would make incisions, using a blade that she used for leather work, and allow Tracy to drink. Fifteen months would pass before the four accused stood before a committal hearing to determine if there was sufficient evidence to go to trial for the murder of Edward Baldock. Wigginson had been implicated by the three other women as the one who carried out the murder, and when confronted with the evidence of her bank card being left at the scene, she cracked and admitted responsibility. But before Wigginson could be sentenced, she underwent two weeks of psychiatric examination to determine whether or not she was mentally accountable for her actions. She spent over 26 hours under hypnosis, being questioned by some of Australia's most prominent psychiatrists and psychologists. And it was determined by these experts that Wigginton was legally insane at the time of the murder. They also noted that under hypnosis, Tracy revealed to them multiple personalities. These personalities consisted of Bobby, who was contemptuous, callous and cynical, the murderous side of her personality. The second was Big Tracy, a good personality, anxious and depressed, distressed by the murder. The third was young or little Tracy, who was childlike and naive. She represented Wigginton's childhood days. And the fourth was a personality who was the observer. This personality was described as detached, calm and rational, acting as a record of the thoughts and actions of Wigginton's three other personalities. The experts also believed that there was a fifth personality named Avril, who was a nightmarish presence that controlled Bobby by screaming in her head. Despite these findings by experts and their belief that Tracy was legally insane at the time of the murder, the Mental Health Tribunal made the ruling that Wigginton was in fact responsible for her actions and that she fully understood their consequences. And so, after pleading guilty, she was sentenced to life in prison. Her three alleged accomplices maintained their innocence and a trial date was set to determine their level of involvement in the murder. On the 31st of January, 1991, the trial commenced. Until now, the media had not paid the story much attention. The Gulf War had dominated the headlines. But now, with the talk of vampires, lesbians, the occult, ending with a violent murder, the media shifted its gaze and the headline of the lesbian vampire killer was coined. The court has been told that Tracy Wigginton believes she was a vampire. She was involved in satanic worship, witchcraft and blood drinking. Her co-accused, Lisa Pajinski, said she could not eat solid food. She had to feed on blood. The three women admitted to being with Tracy on the night in question. However, the defence case rested in a unified claim that they were acting under the influence of Tracy, who they believed to be a vampire with supernatural powers. The job of the prosecution was to prove whether the three co-accused were pawns of Wigginton or did they play an active role and Wigginton was now a convenient scapegoat. Based on previous interviews and statements of witnesses throughout the trial, the following timeline was determined to be an accurate depiction of the events of the night. Two nights prior to the murder, Wigginton had been driving with Jarvis and had spoken of Satanism and devil-worshipping hierarchy. She also confided with her that she believed that Satan wanted her to be a destroyer. She then gathered the others together and echoed this sentiment 
with the request to help her find a victim so she could feed. All three agreed. On the night of the murder, the four women met up again at the Lamours nightclub in the northeastern Brisbane suburb of Fortitude Valley. Witnesses observed that they drank champagne and appeared to be celebrating. At 11.30pm, the women left the club and climbed into Tracy's Holden Commodore. They drove over the Story Bridge, heading south across the Brisbane River, and then followed River Terrace towards the suburb of Kangaroo Point. While they drove, Edward Baldock was wrapping up his night at the Caledonian Club, where he had spent the evening playing darts and drinking. Around midnight, Baldock, heavily intoxicated with a blood alcohol level of 0.3, staggered out of the club and onto the street. Tracy and her gang drew nearer, prowling the nearby streets in their search for a victim. When Edward Baldock appeared in their headlights, his fate was sealed. Pichinsky said he was as drunk as a skunk when they picked him up swinging around a signpost. The girls had planned, you know, that one of them would act as a, a prostitute to entice him into the vehicle. Jarvis, who was more attractive for the four of them, she uh, enticed Mr. Baldock into the car. With this offer, Edward Baldock climbed into the back of the car with Wigington. The women then drove him down to the banks of the Brisbane River. They parked the vehicle in front of the, club, the sailing club. Three females uh, waited there while Wigington took uh, the victim round to the rear of the uh, boat shed. It was behind this boat shed that she convinced him to remove his clothes. She then told him that she needed to retrieve something from the car. While Edward Baldock waited, Tracy returned to the car and collected a knife. She told the others she planned to kill Baldock and insisted that they join her. Lisa Pachinski followed. War and Jarvis chose to stay in the car. Wigginton and Pachinski agreed that they would both attack Baldock. But as they drew near, Pachinski lost her nerve. Wigginton, driven by her lust for blood, approached Baldock, walked behind him and took a knife out of her back pocket and drove it deep into his back. She then withdrew the knife and stabbed him in the side of the neck. She then stabbed him in the other side of the neck and continued to repeatedly pierce him. She grabbed him by the hair, pulled him back and stabbed him in the front of the throat. At this point, he was still alive. She shifted her attack to the back of his neck again. She claimed that she wanted to get into the bones and cut the nerves. When the frenzy was over, Baldock slumped to the ground, almost decapitated. Wigginson then instructed Pachinski to return to the car and wait. While alone, she pressed her face deep into the gaping wound she had so violently carved out and began to drink. With her lust for blood satisfied, Wigginson cleaned herself up in the river and returned to the car, where War, Jarvis and Pachinski were waiting. When questioned by the others as to whether she had fed, she replied, yes. War claimed that she could smell blood on Tracy's breath as they drove away. The four women drove back towards the city and returned to their homes. Kim Jarvis took the murder weapon and washed it with bleach. But with the discovery of the bank card, it would not be long before all four women would be in custody, sharing the gory details of the night. When questioned about the murder, Tracy claimed that she felt nothing at the time 
and even sat smoking a cigarette while she watched Edward Baldock die. During the trial, none of the three women would take the stand. Rather, videotaped interviews were presented to the jury. Lisa Paczynski was portrayed by her defence as an emotionally unstable person who had no idea of the consequences of her actions. She claimed to have believed that Tracy was really a vampire and that she was a willing victim to please her. The court heard Lisa Paczynski had a severe personality disorder. She was thoroughly infatuated and probably dominated by Tracy Wigington. Paczynski said of Wigington, she had some sort of inner power. She can do strange things. She can make people disappear except their eyes. She can read my mind. The court was told Brzezinski had been admitted to hospital 82 times in the last five years. She'd overdosed on drugs or had tried to commit suicide. Kim Jarvis was described by her lawyer as a young lady of good character who collected dolls and Garfield cats. Her role in the murder was played down as being coerced by Wigington, who had a supernatural influence over her. And Tracy Waugh was described by her attorney as a coward who was vulnerable to Wigington's manipulations and even suggested that she was a potential reserve victim if the women were unable to find blood elsewhere that night. The jury took more than two days to find two of the women guilty of the slaying. Today they found Lisa Brzezinski guilty of murder and Kim Jarvis guilty of manslaughter. For her role in the murder, Lisa Paczynski was sentenced to the mandatory life imprisonment. In 2009, she was released on parole. Kim Jarvis was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to 18 years imprisonment, but later reduced to 12 years on appeal. In 1996, after serving five years, Kim Jarvis was granted parole. Tracy War was acquitted of all charges. In 2006, Tracy Wigginson attacked a fellow inmate. Following a number of parole applications, on the 11th of January 2012, then aged 46, Tracy walked free after serving 23 years. In her one and only media interview, Wigington expressed remorse for her actions and stated that she has terrible dreams of Edward Baldock's murder, claiming that she was off the planet when she killed, and describing the motivation as a metaphorical revenge against all those who had hurt her. Once I had started stabbing, I couldn't stop. I couldn't see Mr. Baldock. I kept seeing my grandmother my grandfather, my mother, my father, and all the people in my life who had hurt me. She then closed by saying, Murder is a terrifying experience. It's extremely scary to have that much power. It's playing God with life and death. Nobody should have that sort of power, but we all do.